Thank you, friends. It's good to be with you again in God's Word. If you would turn with me to Galatians chapter 5 again. It's our job tonight, especially, to look at the 25th verse. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. But I want to read the whole passage again because I want to give you something of an overview as we begin tonight, I need to go ahead and express my thanks to all those of you who have so graciously hosted me here. I also want to say, I don't know whether she's in the room, but Nina Meister, who is a student here at Masters College, is a dear, uh, the daughter of a dear friend of mine, Mauro Meister, who is the head of the Andrew Jumper Center in Sao Paulo, Brazil, which is the theological training center that Reformed Theological Seminary partners with for, uh, to prepare people for the pastoral ministry uh, in Brazil, especially in the Presbyterian Church of Brazil. So if you're here tonight, uh, greetings. Uh, I think so much of your father and thank God for his ministry. And then again to the president and to uh, John and to all the others who have been so kind and gracious uh, to me, thank you for the privilege of opening God's word. Now, before we look at this passage tonight, I want to remind you of just a few things that we've already seen together in our time in this passage about the fruits of the Spirit. One is this, the whole of Galatians 5 is about Christian freedom and what it means. Paul in Galatians 5 is explaining the nature of Christian freedom. He's telling you what it is, what it entails. If you'll look back to chapter 4, verse 8, notice that he says, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But in Galatians 5, 1, he says, For freedom, Christ has set us free, stand firm therefore and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. And so Paul is concerned to explain to us what Christian freedom is, what Christian freedom entails. Now it is very important for us to understand, and this is a subject that Paul explicitly takes up in the verses before our passage from verse 1 of chapter 5 all the way down to verse 15, Christian freedom doesn't mean doing anything that we want to do. Christian freedom doesn't mean that we're no longer obligated to obey God. Christian freedom doesn't mean that we can make up the rules as we go along. Christian freedom means wanting to do what we ought to do. Christian freedom means wanting to do what we ought to do. Genuinely from the bottom of our soul, wanting to do what we ought to do. Or to put it another way, Christian freedom means finally being who God made you to be. And doing what God made you to do and loving it while you're doing it. It's not throwing off the shackles of God because, well, if you think that, you don't understand that God is a loving Father. You don't want to throw off his shackles. His yoke is easy. 
and his burden is light. All that he commands is not only for his good, for his glory, but for your good. And so the believer says with the psalmist, how I love your law, O Lord. It's not a burden. It's a delight. Do you remember, do you remember the passage that Dr. MacArthur mentioned on the first message of the conference where Jesus described his feeling about the obligations, the responsibilities, the calling of God on his life in these words. It is my meat to do the will of him who sent me. Do you see what Jesus is saying? He's saying, getting to do the will of God is like spreading a seven-course meal in front of me. I love to do the will of God. Even when it means going to the cross for you. That's the kind of freedom that we've been set free to. To finally be who God made us to be. To finally do what God made us to do and to love it as we do it. It's wanting to do what we ought to do. Now there are mistakes that are made in the definition of Christian freedom. Some people make a move and this is the move of legalism that Paul is so consistently criticizing in the book of Galatians. They want to move from freedom back into bondage and find godliness in external obedience to a ceremonial code. Others want to throw off God's law, disregard God's law, and engage in license. Both of those moves have their root in a misunderstanding of who God is. Those that want to find godliness in external obedience to a ceremonial code think that God's love is conditioned and that it can be earned. They're like the elder brother in the story of the prodigal son. Those who go in the direction of license think that God's law is constraining. It's not good. And that in order to experience the fullness of life, it has to be thrown off. But that is to, again, misunderstand the God who gave that law. He's good. He's loving. He's kind. He gave that law for our blessing. Christian freedom rejects both of those errors and expresses itself in self-control, in neighbor love, in obedience to God. But there's the $64,000 question. How? How? Because we have come point blank, face to face with the realities of verses 16 to 23 in this passage. Realities of the desires that make us want to do what we ought not to do. How do we fight those? Paul's going to explain, especially in verses 24 and 25 tonight. If I could divide the passage as we give a big picture overview, it'd be in two parts. 16 to 23 show you 
the warfare of the Christian life. And it is primarily a warfare against sinful desires. And then verses 24 and 25 show you the way that battle is fought. That's the question for us, isn't it? Lord, I know you want me to do what I ought to do. I just don't know how to do it. Paul is so kind, he doesn't leave you without an answer to that question. You know the old Bob Newhart sketch where he's playing a psychologist and a person comes into his office with a problem and he very impatiently looks at her and he says, okay, here it is, stop it. <laughs> and and she, she's looking for a little more help than stop it. <laughs> and he just keeps repeating, stop it to her. Well, she knew she needed to stop it when she went in the room. What she was looking for help with is how. Well, Paul's counsel to you is not stop it. He tells you how to fight the fight. He's a good pastor. So let's pray and hear God's word. Heavenly Father, your word never fails. Your word is powerful and effective and sharper than two-edged, in any two-edged sword. It pierces down into the depths of our being to places that we can't even divide. It discerns things in us that we wouldn't be able to discern without it. The grass withers. The flowers fade and fall, but your word stands Forever, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So speak, Lord. Your servants listen. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the word of God. Hear it in Galatians 5, beginning in verse 16. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Pause. Does that remind you of anything? Like Romans 7, I do what I don't want to do and I don't do what I want to do. Paul's talking about the same reality. Continue. Verse 18. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. 
I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Amen. And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he write its eternal truth upon all our hearts. In verses 16 to 23, the Apostle Paul tells you a very important thing that you really need to understand if you're going to walk by the Spirit in this life, and that is this. When you became a Christian, you entered into a war that will not end until Jesus brings you to glory. You have just been invited to a fight, and it is the fight of your life. So often in the Christian life, when you are fighting desires, you think something's wrong. Now it's true, something is wrong, but the something wrong may not be the thing wrong that you think it is. You may think that it's wrong to be in a fight. You're wrong about that. The desires may be wrong. <laughs> the actions may be wrong, but the fact that you're in a fight means you're alive. People who are dead in sin do not fight against sin. People who are alive by the Spirit do fight against the remaining desires of sin within them. Your fight is proof that you're alive. And that's very good news because what happens to all of us is we get tired in the fight. And people even invent theologies to try and help you think that the, th the fight can be over in this life. Some people invent theologies that say you can get to a point in this life when you no longer sin. You can have victory in this life and never ever sin again. And why do people come up with theologies like that? Because they're tired of the fight. The fight's long, the fight's hard. But the fight is proof that you're alive. Those who are dead in sin do not fight against sin. Those who are alive do. Paul makes it clear here that the Christian life is a fight. And it is a fight primarily at the level of the desires. Did you see the language that begins in verse 19? I think you can see four categories of desires beginning in verse 19. And Paul makes it clear, by the way, if you'll look down at uh, verse 21, that this is not an exhaustive list. He says, such things... Things like these, he's only, it's not an exhaustive list, but it's a very interesting list. 
Notice the first kind of desires that he talks about our being drawn away into. These are the desires of the flesh. Are sexual sins. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Why does Paul pick that out? Because the desires are so strong there that they can cloud your thinking and they can take you off the path. That, that's why the issue of sexuality is a spiritual issue. Christians aren't a bunch of people with hang-ups we, we know in the Bible that those kinds of desires are so powerful they can redirect your life and they can send you on a path from which you will never return all the way to destruction. Second category. Religious idolatry. Look at the language. Idolatry, sorcery. What, what do we see around us, all around us? An attempt to redefine the truth of who God is and how we come to him. And, and even people who claim to be followers of the one true God, there are people who are redefining who God is and how to come to him. Idolatry. You know, any time somebody says to you, well, I know the Bible says this, but I like to think, you know that everything that comes after I like to think is going to be heresy. And people are doing that all the time. We're all tempted to do that. Because though we were made in God's image, we like to return the favor and remake him in ours. Calvin, Calvin said, our hearts are a perpetual factory of idols. We, we like a God that works for us. But there is a God we want and the God who is, and the two are not the same. And Paul knows the power of that desire. Third category, this desires that work out in social relationships, in personal relationships with other. Paul gets really practical here. Nothing highfalutin about this. Listen, listen to what he says. Then there's enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. What's all that about? You're not getting your way. You're not getting your way. And it plays out like that in personal relationships. Those kinds of things will break up marriages, they'll break up churches, they'll break up schools, They'll break up families. Those desires can wreck life. And then finally, drunkenness and orgies. 
zero in on the drunkenness for a second. Any of you know the power of addictions? Might not just be alcohol, might be some form of drug, prescription medications. Paul's showing you the power of desires to wreak havoc on life. And he's saying this, that's the fight you're in. You're in a fight against desires. And so your question is, how do I fight that fight, Paul? And Paul doesn't leave you without an answer. Paul says, you fight that fight by the Spirit. That's how you fight that fight. It was the Spirit who gave you life. It's the Spirit by whom you fight that fight. The Spirit is the one who brought you from death to life. The Spirit was the one who worked the new birth in you. And it is the Spirit who brought you to life that will fight with you and for you in this fight against the fleshly desires. Now, by saying that, what Paul is saying is this. Christ has set us free. The Spirit keeps us free. Christ has set us free from bondage. It's the Spirit who keeps us free. And of course, that's just what Jesus told the disciples. It's better that I go. Because I'm going to send to you one who comes alongside, who comforts and strengthens and helps and teaches and guides. And he's going to help you live the Christian life. It's just what Jesus said. And it's not only what he said to the disciples in the upper room. He was saying this all the way back in his conversation with Nicodemus. Remember in John 3, Nicodemus is... He knows there's something real about Jesus. He knows there's something different about Jesus. He knows that nobody could do the things that Jesus could do unless God was with him. But he's scared enough about what's going to happen with the other Pharisees that he comes to Jesus by night. And he says to Jesus, I know there's something different about you. Could you just explain to me? Tell me, tell me who you are. Tell me what these things you're saying mean. You remember what Jesus says to him? Turn, turn with me to John 3. The Bible is very funny. And this is one of the funniest passages in the Bible. John 3, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And Jesus answers... Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. In other words, Nicodemus, unless you're born again, you will not be able to understand these things. And you see Nicodemus' response, I don't, I don't understand, Jesus. Thank you. And then... How does Jesus 
say to him that your eyes get opened and that you see the kingdom and that you understand. Verse five, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, in that passage, Jesus is actually referencing Ezekiel 37. You remember that story? That's another funny story. In a vision, God takes Ezekiel to a valley of very dry bones, and he asks him a question. You remember the question? Ezekiel, can these dry bones live? And I love Ezekiel's answer. It is the ultimate dodge. Um, you know, Lord. <laughs> and then what's the next thing that God says to Ezekiel? Preach. And you know what's going through his mind, but Lord, they're dry bones. Right, Ezekiel, preach. And what happens while he preaches? The Spirit brings those dry bones to life. By the way, my friends, that is a picture of what happens every Sunday morning when the word is preached. I can't bring anybody to life. Holy Spirit can. And he uses his word because he wrote it. You see, that principle that the Spirit gives life is not just a New Testament truth. That's something that Jesus learned from his Hebrew Bible. I mean, think of it. Remember Jeremiah 31? What does Jeremiah 31 say is going to happen in the New Covenant? The law is going to be written on your heart. Who's going to do that? The Holy Spirit is going to do that. You say, Ligon, well, how, where do you get that from? Would you please turn with me to Ezekiel 36? And in Ezekiel 36, notice what God said he is going to do to erring, straying Israel. I will, verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you. That sound familiar? John 3. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. The Apostle Paul is saying the same thing to you and me. You want to walk with God? Follow the Spirit. He's the one who gave you life. He's the one who gave you the new birth. He's the one who wrote God's law on your heart. He's the one who gave you a new heart. Follow him. Now let me say very quickly. 
in our own time, there have been many people who have tried to make this theological move. We are no longer going to follow the Bible, but we are going to be led by the Spirit. The Spirit will never lead you away from the Bible because he wrote it. He will lead you more deeply into it. He will lead you to greater understanding of it. He will lead you to places that you do not want to go, but which are in accordance with God's word. He will never lead you to places which are forbidden in God's word. When someone tells you that they are going to be led by the spirit and not by the word, they are violating the spirit's own declaration that he is the inspirer of the word. Being led by the Spirit does not mean being led away from the Word. It is being led by the Word into the Word wherever God would have us serve him in this world. So don't ever let anybody play those two things off. Walking by the Spirit, keeping in step with the Spirit, following the Spirit, being led by the Spirit is never ever in opposition to the authority of the Word of God. Because all scripture is given by inspiration. It is God breathed. It is breathed out. The spirit of God has given us the inspired inerrant word. He will not contradict his own word. But what does it mean to be led by the spirit? Well, listen to these wonderful Beautiful, brief sentences. The source of our life is the Spirit. And so the Spirit must direct our steps. William Hendrickson says that in explaining Galatians 5.25. Isn't that a beautiful description? Galatians 5. 25, turn with me there again. It says, if we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. The, we live by the Spirit. The reason we're alive is because of the Spirit. If we live by the Spirit, we must Walk by the Spirit. If the Spirit is the source of our life, the Spirit directs our steps. Or, listen to how John Calvin explains that sentence. By life here is meant the inward power of the Spirit in us. By the walk, our Outward actions are meant. Now that's helpful. We live by the Spirit. The Spirit is the force, the power within us that has given us newness of life and is the motive force behind everything that we do. Our walk are the actions that result from that work of Him within. And so Calvin goes on to say if the Spirit of God lives in us, let him govern our actions. 
But again, you say to me, so how do I do that? I understand now that you're telling me that the way I fight these desires that Paul has talked about in 16 to 23 is by the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who brought me from death to life. I was dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. Now I've been brought to newness of life. So I'm supposed to live the Christian life by the help, by the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm to follow the Spirit How do I do that? And here's a very important part of the answer to that. You make use of the means of grace that God has appointed for your edification. That's how you follow the Spirit. What do I mean by that? What are the means of grace? The preaching of the word. The administration of God's ordinances. The gathering of the saints on the Lord's day to worship him. The fellowship and communion of the saints. Prayer. These things may seem weak, but they are the instruments that the Spirit uses to lead us in life. When I was a freshman in college, already by that time for five years, I had felt a definite inward call to gospel ministry. And that call had been somewhat confirmed by the elders in my local church. So when I went off to college, I already knew that I wanted to go to seminary. But in my, the final months of my senior year in high school and in the early months of my first year in college, I wanted something. And that something was a relationship And that something was a relationship with a young woman. And that something was a relationship with a young woman who did not share my commitment to the ministry or to the Lord. And it was probably the nine nine of the most miserable months of my life. How did I come out of that? One, I kept going to church. And I can remember going into church and feeling like I was going through the motions and that the the preacher's sermon, as faithful as it was, it sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher in the comic strip. Wah, 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 wah. But every once in a while, a word would get through. And the word would say to me, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not home. You weren't made for this. You were made for something else. It's the conviction of the spirit using the word. And then what else happened? 
Well, my father and my mother who love me, they're carefully watching me as well. And they're giving me counsel in the context not only of the family but of the communion of the saints. And then I'm around Christian friends. They see the struggles going on in me. And what, what in, in very simple ways, what does the Spirit do? He uses the word in the context of the means of grace in the communion of the saints in order to say to me, you're not where you're supposed to be. You're not doing what you were made to do. You're not being who you were made to be. And I can remember the night in the ordination service of my youth pastor, John Hutchinson, in the First Presbyterian Church of Augusta, Georgia, when it all came clear. And I didn't want to leave that room because I knew this is where I belong with the people of God. This is my home. That's not my home. What my desires wanted, that's not my home. That's not my place. That's not God's will. What did the Spirit use? His means of grace. Don't ever underestimate the power of sitting under God's word. The Spirit will use it. Don't ever underestimate the power of the communion of saints. I can remember in my first semester of doctoral work at the University of Edinburgh, I, I decided that I had read an unbelieving theologian who was attacking the word of God, and I decided that I needed to read everything that he had ever written. And it was a soul-killing three months. A soul-killing three months. Interestingly, I was simultaneously reading Jay Gress, the biography of J. Gresham Machen by Ned Stonehouse. And, and interestingly, the same thing happened to Machen when he went to Germany to study. And in, in, in his correspondence with his mother, essentially his mother said, J. Gresham Machen, do not become a heretic or I will come over there and I will take care of it myself. <laughs> and I had that kind of a mother. I had that mother and I had those sorts of theological interchanges. But the Lord used a lot of things. He used the preaching of the word in the church I was attending. He used one of my professors who had been through the same kinds of questions and struggles who helped me greatly, but... I can remember one of the most powerful testimonies during that time simply being going to an Indian restaurant in London with two dear Christian friends of mine. One was a doctor, one was a lawyer. And our conversation wasn't particularly theological, but I remember looking at her and looking at him and thinking, there is no way that two human beings could be like this unless there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And that was all it took. That's all it took. The Spirit broke the power of the doubt. My friends, walking by the Spirit, walking in step with the Spirit, following the Spirit, will always mean being led by and deeper into the word of God. And the place that he usually does that 
is in the context of the means of grace. You know, the, the, the Christian life is not rocket science. It's, ve- it's actually very simple. Doesn't make it easy. Sometimes it's very hard, but it's very simple. Walk by the Spirit. Don't, don't follow those desires of the flesh. They will lead you to the pit of hell. Follow the Spirit who uses the word, the context of the means of grace to show you where you belong, whose you are, what you are to do. And he'll never let you down. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for these brothers and sisters, these friends. For those who are not alive by the Spirit, it's my prayer tonight that you would make them alive by the Spirit so that they rest and trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel. For those who know Christ and are in great battles with their desires now, here's my prayer. Break the power of reigning sin. Set the prisoner free. Cleanse them from its guilt and power. Lead them by the Spirit. Bring them under the means of grace. Make those means of grace powerful and effectual. In Jesus' name, amen.